Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hold and you will be able to listen to the show.
Christian, can you hear me? Yes, I can. You should be okay. live. So uh, are you going to play something and then let me know when I should start? Yeah, give me a play. common goal should be turning America to its constitutional republic roots. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of work, a lot of sacrifice that people make to accomplish certain things. That actually didn't belong to the federal government in the first place. It belongs to you and I. Some hope for the youth of our country. This is my next phase of my mission. The next greatest generation. You are listening to Reach Out America. If you're not mad, you're not paying attention. And if you're not paying attention, you're part of the problem. You're good to go. Uh, good evening, everyone. This is Bill Muckler on um, Reach Out America, W-I-N-N, America's uh, Phoenix, the Rise from the Ashes is the name of this program. Uh, this is your uh, host, Bill Muckler, otherwise known as Captain 2020, the author of 2020, A Clear Vision for America. And uh, this is the... Uh, Thursday evening show. It's September 17th, and uh, tonight uh, we're honored to have a, a, an author on with us, a special guest, and uh, we're going to welcome him in just a few minutes. Um, I just want to welcome uh, everybody. Uh, 
ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, to the show. And we're looking for a very uh, lively show tonight. This is going to be very interesting. Uh, we're going to talk to uh, Mr. Carrie. Unmuted. Gary, if you're on, speak up. I'm on. This is Brian. Uh, what happened to Bill? Bill's here. There you are. Well, you went quiet all of a sudden, and it was like, okay, what happened? <laughs> no, I'm I'm waiting for uh, waiting for us to get our guest Carrie uh, Whalen on. Ah, what time's he coming on? Uh, now. Okay. I will be quiet then. Muted. Oh, that's okay. You can talk until he comes on. <laughs> Does anybody hear me? Is this Carrie? Yeah. Do you hear me? Yes, Carrie. Uh, welcome. Yeah, this, is, this, this is Bill Muckler. Welcome to uh, our show, Reach Out America. And uh, we're, we're uh, all excited to uh, talk to you and hear about your book. And uh, I'm want to tell everybody that um, you're from, uh, is it Valley Stream, New York? Yeah, Valley Stream, right on the New York City border, Queens. Yes, and uh, very close to the the airport, JFK, and as a young man, uh, you were going to school and uh, working various jobs, studying, and uh, you went to work for Lufthansa at, uh, at JFK, and could you tell us a little bit about how you um, how you came across um, Lufthansa and how you started to go to work for them and you know a little bit of your background and early uh, history. Well, the robbery was back in 1978. I started working for Lufthansa in '77. Back then, uh, airline jobs were glamour jobs. You were well paid, uh, medical benefits, all the travel benefits. So I figured if I could get a job there, I could afford to go to Adelphi University. So somebody got me into Lufthansa, and a year later, I was working the night at a robbery. I was supposed to go home at 8 in the evening, and I they asked me to work till midnight. I said, sure, I'll work till midnight. Then they said, stay till 7. So that's like a 15-hour shift. I said, sure. Well, at 3 in the morning, the bad guys showed up. And, of course, that was completely unexpected. You had no idea this was going to happen, although there had been uh... – stories and a history of uh, theft at uh, JFK, but uh, your regular shift, like you said, was uh, was over at 8 p.m. on a Sunday evening, and uh, you were ready to go home, and they asked you to work overtime. Yeah, the money was good, so I never said no to overtime. They knew that. Yeah, but, and why not? So anyway, 3 in the morning, they stormed the building, the wise guys. 
Uh, people know the movie Goodfellas, uh, Joe Pecci. He was playing yep. Tommy DeSimone. And uh, another guy named Carbone was playing his partner, Angelo Seppi. So they stormed the building, but I'm not there. I'm over at American Airlines. I had a half a million dollars worth of caviar in the truck, and I was watching my mirrors. I was afraid I might get uh, hijacked because I was the comet at the airport. So anyway, I finish at uh, American around 320. And I arrived back at Lufthansa in the, on the backside of the airport where the planes are at 3.30. And there's two jerks sitting back there with no mask on. I figured, I, it's not my shift. I don't know what happens at 3 in the morning around here. I figured it might be the vending machine guys or a cleaning crew. But anyway, my head, headlights went right into their van, the brights. And I saw the passenger real, real good. So anyway, I get out of the van, uh, out of my truck, and I start walking over to them because I had to walk right by them to get into the building. Well, next thing you know, I'm running for my life. He, somebody, Angelo mumbled something. So I was running for my life, but I had to stop to get into the building. I had to stop to open the two doors. Anyway, I didn't make it. They they caught up, and uh, they pistol at me. But I, I got good looks at both of them. So uh, they started asking me questions in the van, and uh, they're talking about the vowel room. Now, the vowel room is where all, all the money is. Jules. Oh, the Val Room is I and and I've read your entire book. The Val Room is what where all the valuables were uh, held, like in storage or inventory. Right. When the planes come in, all the cargo is on a manifest, and it'll say on a manifest where all the valves are on the plane, and we collect all the valuables and we put them in that uh, 10 foot by 20 foot room. Well, Friday afternoon. A shipment came in from, uh, it was going to Chase Bank, I forget who sent it, but it was going to Chase in Manhattan. Five million dollars in cash, 15 $100 bills. Uh, no serial numbers recorded, because they were all circulated bills. So the three Brinks drivers Friday afternoon tried to pick the money up, but they keep getting delayed at Lufthansa. And the Friday's a busy day at the airports, and it's not a delayed 90 minutes to call their boss. The boss says, Go to the other airlines. You can't stay at Lufthansa all day. So that money was sitting in the vault over the weekend. And when I say vault, it's just a valve room. It's just a a door with keys. That's all it is. You can drive a forklift through the whole place. So uh, the finally. And, and how much? How much cash? was the total amount of cash? But that one shipment, five million. They say everything else that they took was five point eight five million. But I think it's closer to ten million. When people ship stuff, they they don't tell U.S. Customs the true value. They all uh, underball it. If you ship it a hundred thousand, you tell uh, U.S. Customs it's ten thousand. Okay, so that what saves taxes or insurance money or and Every, everybody underestimates. Yeah, you, you don't have to. You know, you report less on your income tax. Okay, so we're talking about uh, upwards to uh, ten million dollars back in. Uh, this was December of 1978. 37 years ago. Okay, so that $10 million, that'd be a heck of a lot more right now. But uh, And that was what, the biggest uh, robbery uh, in, in America? In history. Okay, so so you made history that night, Kerry. Oh, absolutely. Boy, did I make history. So when uh, so they got you at the door, and, um, and they... Pretty much uh, pistol whip you, beat you up pretty bad. I know you suffered some injuries and had to get medical uh, treatment. 
But what they do? They uh, threw you in uh, in a van, then, uh, and there were some of them, and uh, what? Another uh, one of your uh, fellow workers were in there. Uh, I saw two guys. They threw me in a van, but I he- heard a, a third voice. And when I was in the van, I had the feeling it was the third guy in there. Then uh, my partner walked out. Uh, Ralph, he heard the screaming. So, uh, yeah, thank God he didn't call the police. I mean, I bet you he thinks he should have, but if he called the police, <laughs> there would have been a shootout there because four to 30 cops don't play games. So anyway, uh, they subdue Ralph, and they still didn't put their mask on. So now they got me and Ralph in the van, and then uh, some of the wise, more wise guys come, and uh, they had everybody rounded up now. They had 10 employees rounded up, so they had everybody. So they drive the van into the building, right up, right up to the bow room, and they take me out of the bow room and bring me in Ralph upstairs. They told me to take my mask off, but I, I didn't do it. I just, I just wouldn't do it because I didn't know they had mask on. So I kept my mask on the whole time because I saw enough. I don't want to see anymore. So when we get upstairs to the cafeteria, there's ten of us there. They take Rudy, the supervisor. Now Rudy was a strict good guy German. You know, he's one of these guys that survived off the Eastern Front. Thank God Rudy was working that night, because if anybody else was working that night, they they would have passed out. So they take Rudy downstairs, tell him open the vault. He did, and he gave him everything. Not a shot fired. Uh, they got there around 3 in the morning. They were gone by like 4.30 at the latest. Okay, and now so- you call these guys the wise guys, and you also made reference to the movie Goodfellas, which we, I think many of us saw, and Joe Pesci was in that, and I think Ray Liotta was in there. Who were some of the other uh, movie stars that were in that movie? Oh, uh, Ray Liotta played Henry Hill. Uh, Who also wrote a book about this. Well, uh, Nicholas Poligi gave Henry Hill back around 1984 a half a million dollars just for his story. And Harry, Harry Hill was just a low-life gangster. You know, he sold uh, cigarettes and drugs and no big deal. But he hung out in the places where everybody else hung out, the big shots. So he had a story to tell. But he didn't know too much about the Lufthansa robbery. If you read the book Wise Guy, it's a very good book. I highly recommend it. Wise Guy, Life in a Mafia Family. Uh, it's a very good book, but it doesn't, know, doesn't cover the Lufthansa heist very well because Henry Hill didn't know much about it. I see. So what really happened then that night is is the mafia uh, knew about this money somehow, uh, knew about this shipment, and uh, you just happened to be the guy in the wrong place at the wrong time working an overtime shift and, uh, in a sense, were the victim of this whole thing. Yeah, I was definitely the victim. Uh, one of the persons who were working, was working for Lufthansa Friday afternoon, was guy's name was Louis Werner. He worked at the import counter. He made a phone call. He told the mob that the money was there. So they knew the money was there. They weren't exploring. They knew it was there. Inside job. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, Lou was convicted. He did about two years. Then he, you know, got a pension from the federal government. That's nice. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) They didn't give you one, though, did they? Largest armed robbery in American history, and the guy did about two years in prison. Mm-hmm. So then, um, 
what, after they left about four, uh, you said about four twenty or four thirty in the morning, uh, uh, someone must have called the uh, Port Authority police, or yeah, how, how did that all happen? Uh, they said uh, we're going to be outside the cafeteria doors for ten minutes. You give us another ten minutes. So they probably left around four fifteen, and at four thirty, uh, the Port Authority got the call to come over, and. Uh, now, the building's all sealed up. Maybe they left the back door open when they left. But this poor black police officer shows up, <laughs> and he goes, what color were they? And we tell him, uh, all Brooklyn accents, all white guys. And I took a lot of cuts for him to walk in that building. So he got here a little too early, he, he might have been shot. But then uh, a few minutes later, like a half a dozen white guys come running in the room, and uh, the white guys go, what color were they? The black cop goes, they was all white. And the whole place went hysterical laughing. Okay, so so then uh, what happened uh, to you? Did they start interrogating you and uh, uh, take us to, uh, you know, how they treated you and, and you know, what they did uh, uh, over the next uh, several days? Uh I went over to the med. The doctor came over. He says we have to go to the medical center for you know skull X-ray and some uh, sutures. We did that. Then I spoke to the port. Came back. Spoke to port authority detectives. The port authority detectives had a Lufthansa employee sitting in, to, in a room listening to everything. That's totally unacceptable. But first time being a crime victim, I didn't know that. Well, the next day, my name was in all the papers. I did one composite sketch. My name was right under it. Kerry Whalen did this. And it was uh, the passenger, Angelo Seppi. Another employee did a sketch of the driver, Tommy DeSimone. So when I saw that in the papers the next day, I went right over to the Nassau County Police, and they gave me bodyguards. Okay, so that that really put you in danger. Uh, Carrie, let me stop for just a second here to uh, tell all of our listeners that they're listening to uh, – uh, WINN uh, World Integrity News Network. This is Reach Out America. It's uh, Thursday night, September 17th. And uh, our call in number is 516-453-9128. And uh, we've had a lot of uh, internet problems and a lot of uh, network problems and so forth. So I don't have the, uh, the internet link to this, but we will have it after the show. And uh, we'll put that out so people can uh, listen to it uh, any time after tonight, uh, tonight or uh, after tonight, probably tomorrow or the next day. And that'll be around for a long time. Uh, so, Carrie, like if you want to save it, and, uh, it'll be available to you. So, anyway, you're listening to uh, Bill Muckler and uh, our special guest, Carrie Whalen, who is the author of Inside the Lufthansa Heist. The FBI lied, and I guess this is what we really want to get into now is how the FBI uh, handled this whole situation and your relationship with them and moving forward now that you um, were interrogated um, that first morning. Well, the FBI didn't, didn't interrogate, interrogate, talk to me the first day. They didn't talk to me Monday. They showed up 36 hours later at my home, uh, FBI agent Thomas Sweeney. And uh, the Nassau County Police were my bodyguards, and they said to Sweeney, uh, when, are, when are you guys going to take over uh, police protection? And Sweeney said, it's not our job, we're just an investigative force. 
Now, that's an absolute disgrace. And But they hadn't bothered to do an investigation for 36 hours on the biggest uh, robbery in American history. Well, I'm sure they were doing something, but they didn't speak to an eyewitness. That's for sure. Well, how could they investigate if you were the guy that, you were the guy that was there? Well, there were nine other people there, but uh, I saw them without masks. There was only one other guy who saw him without masks that I know of. But, yeah, they were slow to the game. Okay, so Sweeney shows up uh, at your house. Yeah. And un- and unannounced, doesn't even uh, call? And... No, no, no. I, I knew they were coming because I call FBI. I, I, I shoot them out. I said, you know, my name's in all the papers. Uh, you guys going to do anything? And, oh, well, we'll speak to the bosses. It was, it was like a routine job for them. This is the largest arm robbery in American history. This ain't routine. Get off your butts and get over here. So I spoke to Sweeney for about three hours, and uh, he took off. Then the Port Authority police took over police protection. And uh, the Port Authority patrolmen were really good. They gave me really good advice. They said, you know, if the... FBI don't want to protect you. They don't give a damn about you, so don't give a damn about them. Uh, one of the guys, uh, he said, uh, uh, don't go anywhere without a gun. Have a gun in a car. Have a gun in a house. Have a pistol in your pants. Don't mess around, because $5 million, life is nothing to these guys. So a couple days later... I go to FBI headquarters in Rigo Park. They want to show me pictures. And uh, it was FBI agent Stephen Carbone. He was one of them. And I said, this better be confidential. If I read this in the newspapers, I'm going to get a lawyer. Well, sure enough, it was in the newspapers. And I did get a lawyer. I should have got a lawyer the first day. His name was Bruno Barada. Best thing I ever did. Yeah, so you so you finally did uh, contact an attorney, and in your book you talk quite a bit about Bruno Barada, and uh, I guess uh, he he turned out to be very helpful for you. Ah, oh, Bruno was the best. He was an angel. You kidding? I was I was speaking to movie producers this year, and uh, they told me Bruno started his law practice in Little Italy. He knew quite a few of those people. And he was also an attorney for, like, the Nassau County Police Benevolent Association. So uh, Bruno had his hands in everything. He knew everybody. The movie so he was a good guy for you to know. and uh, Absolutely. So, and also, uh, you, all, you had to, uh, you had contact with the, uh, what, what was it, district attorney or, or uh, prosecuting attorneys? Uh, tell us all about that and how how all that happened? Uh, well, once my name was in the newspaper, I mean, once uh, once I got Bruno, I, I really had no need to talk to these FBI agents anymore. I told them the truth. I gave them the story. It ain't, this ain't my problem anymore. So I got, I got hit with my first subpoena and uh, by some arrogant FBI agent named Lynch. So uh, I showed up the next day. No notice, you know, get a subpoena like five in the afternoon and be in uh, Brooklyn the next day. So I did. And, I, of course, no grand jury to talk to. I was just talking to uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Edward McDonald, and uh, he was of no help. 
largest armed robbery in American history. He could care less about me. So I really could care less about him. Uh, did we go to a lineup that day? I I, th- I remember you uh, in the book. You mentioned uh, a lineup. Um, I don't remember if it was the first day or not. I'm looking. Uh, oh yeah, we were we were supposed to view a lineup that day, but there was a mustache technicality. I heard the guys talking. I heard the law officers talking. That uh, something wrong with mustaches. So uh, I walked out of there. I went home. I had no lineups. But uh, I got another subpoena. Oh, maybe I didn't get another subpoena. They asked me to look at another lineup, so I went there for like two weeks later. Now, they got Angelo Seppi in jail. He's under arrest. They have control over his body. So I thought I was going to look at his lineup. He was never in the lineups. I don't know who was in the lineups, but it wasn't Angelo Seppi. And Angelo Seppi's arrest warrant, which, which was a total lie, said, I said things I just never said. But he's in jail. And you would think they'd put Angelo in a lineup, but he wasn't in a lineup. So that was another day I went home. Then, so, uh, what, what were they lying about, or what did you tell them that they uh, they misrepresented or lied about? Uh, the, when they arrested Angelo on February 17th, four days later, the New York Times had an article and said Kerry Whalen said Angelo was walking around with a bounce and a few other things. Uh, Bill, I didn't see anybody walking. I was running away. I didn't have any eyes in the back of my head. I got beat up, and uh, they were bending over me. I didn't see anybody standing up or bouncing around. So when I read that in the New York Times, I called up Sweeney on the spot. I said, this is a bunch of, I don't want to curse, I don't, uh, I, I told them off. I said, uh, I'm going to get a lawyer tomorrow morning. You, you guys are just a bunch of gangsters. So that's when I had Bruno the very next morning. But uh, the rest yeah. of not I got the arrest warrant without telling the DA. I got it from the public records, and I gave it to Bruno. But Bruno came down, and uh, it was just a lie. So uh, it was around uh, April 6th or something. I was talking to McDonald on the phone, and uh, I said I want my statements because I wanted my statements to prove to everybody that the arrest warrant was a lie, and he wouldn't give me my statements. So he finally threatened me with arrest. He says, I'll throw you in jail or I'll subpoena I'll throw you in jail or I'll uh, subpoena you like Ruin Wall, something like that. So I called up Bruno and sure enough I got a subpoena that night. So Monday morning we were in uh, Brooklyn, Bruno and I looked at a lineup and uh McDonald promised Bruno that he would mail the statements. Well, McDonald lied. Bruno and I never got the statements. It's 37 years later. I still don't have the statements. Okay, 37 years later. Um, Carrie, this all happened in uh, December of 78, and now you're you're into, like, uh, April of uh, 1979. How old were you then? Uh, 23. 23 when the robbery happened. So you're you're really a young guy, and you don't have any experience in how all this works, and uh, you were just kind of the unfortunate victim at that time. And uh, I, I was I was a victim of the mafia for one hour, and I've been a victim of the FBI and their incompetence and their lies for 37 years. 
Wow, that's that's just unbelievable how um, how they can uh, treat citizens of the United States. Carrie, uh, let me stop for just a second here. It's just about um, going on 30 minutes uh, after the first hour of the show, and I wanted to remind everyone they're listening to the World Integrity News Network. This is uh, Reach Out of America, uh, and this is Bill Muckler, your host, interviewing Carrie Whalen. And our call-in number is 516-453-9128. Again, 516-453-9128. Now, if you want to be on the show to ask questions or to um, make comments, uh, you need to press 1 to get in the queue, and our producer will uh, recognize you in the queue and uh, and will put you on uh, as, as he has an opportunity to do so. So, um, I'm not sure how many guests we have on right now because we've been just uh, talking with Carrie. But, Carrie, one of the things that I found out, and I, I put on Facebook, I said it was breaking news, and you kind of said, well, it's not really breaking. But uh, <laughs> what happened is now the FBI now is, or I, I guess I call it a shocking new development because to me, after reading the book, that's exactly what it looks like to me. And I guess you're so uh, involved in it that um, – you're, you're, you, I guess you've gotten used to just about everything the FBI can possibly do to a citizen. But anyway, tell us uh, the latest development with the FBI. Uh, okay. Let's go to 2013. That's like 35 years after the robbery. So, sounds good. Uh, December 2nd, I started noticing people hanging out around on the block. And uh, these two uh, young white guys are ringing a bell late in the morning. Now, North Valley Stream, we get a lot of Mormon missionaries. But normally not in December. So I'm thinking, boy, these guys are these are Mormon missionaries, and they're very devoted, and they're, they're after me. And they would come back like every other day. I would turn on my uh, computer, and right away there'd be a Mormon commercial. I'm calling up my friends. I'm, I'm telling them the Mormons are after me. Then I get a phone call, 1.30 in the afternoon, around December 12th or so. This is FBI agent Adam and Annie. We'd like to, then it clicked right away. They were FBI agents for the last 10 days trying to talk to me. Uh, so uh, he goes, you know, we can't buy your house a few times. We'd like to talk to you. I go, I'm not letting you in the house. And he goes, why? I go, that's my right. I'm not talking to you guys. Uh, and he was like a little shocked. Uh, so I, I said, uh, if you have any questions, why don't you put them in writing? I yell, I was yelling at him that put your questions in writing. And then I hung up on him. He didn't, he didn't give me any information. Why should I give him any information? I told him I was waiting for my statements for 35 years. So, uh. And at the same time, under the Freedom Information Act, I asked for my documents from the Eastern District of New York, and they re they said we don't have any. This was like uh, maybe September 2013. So uh, I appealed, and December, uh, January of 14, I get a letter from the government saying we have absolutely no records of you. Uh, case closed. Ten days later, FBI agent Manini calls again. And he says, 
Gee, the U.S. attorneys would really like to talk to you. They have no records of me, but they want to talk to me. All they want to do is lie. So, I never called them back. Uh, so, um, that and that was two years ago, and now uh, just just this past week they've contacted you again? Uh, no. Uh, I have my uh, A sign. I got my book cover. It's two foot by three foot. I walk on the Long Beach boardwalk with the A sign because... I just want to, you know, strum up business for the book. Plus, I learn a lot of information. There's a lot of wise guys in Long Beach. If you want to solve the Lufthansa heist, all you have to do is walk around Long Beach. So uh, one day, this guy comes up to me, and he says he's a city cop. And he's talking just like an FBI agent, monotone, using the words triangulation, all of this stuff. So... I go home. The next weekend I go back, and I made sure I have my camera and all of that stuff. And I say, if I see this jerk again, I know he's an FBI agent. Well, who do I see right away? The same guy. I took his picture, I got him on video, and his partner. Once they saw me with the camera, they started running down the boardwalk. It was hysterical. And I put their pictures on Facebook. <laughs> Now this, now, this week, I get a call. I got to be careful because there's supposed to be a trial next month. I don't believe it, but there's supposed to be a trial next month for a guy arrested for the Lufthansa. He's 80 years old. So uh, today's Thursday. Tuesday, I get a call like 10, 10.30 in the morning. And I never pick up the phone unless I see a number and a name. But this guy started talking, and there was a number there, 516, my local area code. So I figured I'll pick it up. This guy wants to talk to me about my book. He has some questions. He says he represents uh, Vinius. He's saying Vinius Sario. Now, that's not the guy who was arrested. The guy's name is Asaro. So he's not even pronouncing this guy's name right. And he's pronouncing the lawyer's name wrong. So I'm suspicious. So he goes, I'd like to meet with you and ask you some questions about the book. And I ask him a rhetorical question. I go, did you read the book? And he goes, no. I go, why didn't you read the book? He goes, I don't have enough time to read your book. So then I started shouting. I was on speakerphone. I go, if you don't have time to read my book, I don't have time to talk to you. And I, I, hung, I, I was trying to hang up, and I couldn't hang up. I didn't, didn't hit the right number. So I go, read my book and call me back. Then I hung up. That was about 1030. At 3 in the afternoon, the doorbell's ringing. And I, I'm suspicious right away. So uh, I had the rug doctor. I was doing the carpets the week before. The, so all my toys were not in the right spot, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I like to know where my toys are from Vietnam. So uh, I grabbed the camera. I uh, look out. I can't see him. He's right up against the door. I can't see him. But I kept the video on. And sure enough, he steps out. I go, who are you? What do you want? He goes, I'm the guy who spoke to you this morning. Oh, baby. I go, I don't know who the hell you are. Get the hell out of here. I'm calling the police. And, and he gave me a little, well, I'll show you my badge. Yeah, well, what's that going to do? So I called 911 right away. They showed up. Uh, but he was gone.
but they did talk to him. This guy probably flagged him down on the next street and told him, listen, I'm just a PI, and I didn't mean to cause any trouble, and he took off. But I don't know who he's working for. I don't know if he's working for the lawyer. Well, I know he could have been an FBI agent. And why would I let anybody in my home 37 years later, unannounced, hey, let's sit on the couch and we'll talk about the Lufthansa heist? I, I agree. Okay, uh, speaking of uh, your book and reading the book, uh, Carrie, I, I bought your book on uh, Amazon.com, and I want to tell everybody that's listening, I really recommend you, you get this book. Go to Amazon.com. The name of the book is Inside the Lufthansa Heist, colon, The FBI Lied, and it's by Carrie Whalen, W-H-A-L-E-N is the author. Carrie Whalen wrote Inside the Lufthansa Heist. I, I bought this book on Kindle, uh, and I started reading it, and the way it reads, it's it's factual. It's a documentary, but it reads like Carrie's telling the story, it, it reads it reads easier than a novel reads, and so I, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, "Whoa, this is really good. I'm really enjoying this." And all of a sudden, I'm getting into it, and I'm turning pages, and uh, before I know it, I'm in the you know like page seventy or eighty or something like that. The book is not that long. It's not that diff- it, difficult to read. In fact, it's really a lot of fun to read, Carrie. Um, I, because you just wrote it the way you know it happened to you, and you wrote it you know like like you're telling a story, and that was really good. But the thing that I that I got out of it most was you didn't really get any support at all from the FBI or the uh, the, uh, the attorney's office, uh, the prosecuting attorney. I mean, they they really dumped on you. I got threats from the U.S. Attorney's Office, Eastern District of New York. I got threats. I got lies. When I go to Cadman Plaza to do a little research, I feel like I'm walking into East Berlin. I've been in East Berlin, and that's the way I feel at Cadman Plaza. If you're a victim of a organized crime, you'll be treated like garbage. Over. They don't care about you at all. They're just making deals. and You would think an organized crime victim would get a little help. I got nothing. Not even my statements. That's the honor. The FBI and I are so different on everything, it's unbelievable. Can I read one sentence from my book? This is about the witnesses. You can, you can read as much as you like. You've got all the time you want. This is my book that came out last year. Quote, there were 10 hostages in total, all full-time employees except for me. Wolfgang, Kurt, John, Rudy, Andy, Klaus, Ralph, Mike, and a whacking hot fire warden. Now, remember I told you about FBI agent uh, Stephen Carbone? Yes. I'm going to quote what he wrote this year in a book. Retired FBI agent Stephen Carbone stated in a book that came out this year, quote, there were no witnesses but the participants. Do you think there's a little difference of opinion? Yeah. Unbelievable. That's why I will never, ever speak to an FBI agent again. Never, under any circumstances. Okay. And if a no. U.S. attorney wants to talk to me, let's do it on a stand in front of a judge and a jury. That's the only way. Carrie, um, you talked about the 
that ten uh, Lufthansa employees, including yourself, but you also mentioned that there were about, uh, and this, and I guess there was some, um, uh, maybe maybe there were some differences uh, of opinion or differences on uh, observation because um, uh, you you at one time you thought that there were seven um, of the. Um, of the robbers, and then it could have actually been nine because they were in different places of the building, and so you never really had contact with all of them. When you were, when they threw you in the van, there was two of them, and the third one come up, and then when they put you up in the uh, like the lunchroom or cafeteria, whatever it was, you saw uh, some different ones and so forth. But you never really saw everybody that was involved in it at any one time, did you? No, after they beat me up, I uh, I never took my hat off till uh, they were all gone. But when we were going up the stairs, there were at least four, probably five men just on the flight of stairs I was on. So if there's four or five guys just on the stairs, there's probably got to be another four or five around. Because this building was open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Any trucker could pull up at any time and show up and ring the bell and, hey, where are you guys? Let's go and start snooping around. So I think there was, I would say eight. If I had a bet, I'd say eight. Okay. Now tell us. Uh, this is what really gets interesting. Then is tell us what happened uh, to those eight, because uh, not not all of them are around anymore, are they? Uh, no, they're definitely not around. Uh, they were murdered pretty quickly. Uh, Tommy D. Simone, one of the guys I saw, you know, I saw his face. Uh, he didn't last like a month after the robbery. What happened to him? Uh, he went for a swim, I think, after they took a chainsaw to him. <laughs> a swim, okay. Uh, he's, in, and, he's, in Jamaica, he's in Jamaica Bay. Okay. And I, I, I remember you... You describing the uh, the road to uh, the cemetery. I can't remember the exact name of it and so forth. It was kind of like a snake road. Snake road, yeah, swampy area. Yeah, yeah, a lot, a lot of bodies were put there. My my father was a city fireman, right at the airport, so I knew all about the crime. He was ladder one fifty eight, New York City Fire Department. He was first due at the airport. Uh, and he he showed me Snake Road. It was a huge dumping ground for construction equipment, you know, building material. It was it was a disaster. This is back in the 70s when you could take a truckload of cement and just drop it in the middle of a city street and nobody would do anything. So he told me, you know, it's, it was always on fire, and uh, sometimes they found bodies. Okay, and so well, what happened to some of the others that were uh, involved in it? Uh, well, they were murdered. Uh. When Lou Werner was convicted, he was convicted like in June. Uh, that night, uh, two guys were murdered, uh, found in Brooklyn, bullet in the back of the head, because they, they might have had connection to Lou. And, you know, the first thing the FBI wants to do is, well, you're convicted now, so give us a name and you can take a walk. Uh, another guy, Fat Louie, he beat me up too. Uh, he was talking to the city police. So about a year, year, year after the robbery, him and the wife just disappeared. If you would see the movie Goodfellas, he pulls up in the Cadillac. That's supposed to be Fat Louie. Him, the wife, and the Cadillac gone. Never to be found again. Uh, yeah. 
I saw the movie so, so long ago. I'm going to have to uh, rent it or get it on DVR or something like that and watch it again because now I can. I'll be able to relate to a lot of it. I've seen it a hundred times and I still enjoy it, and I still <laughs> learn a little bit every day about it. The mm-hmm. guy who was portraying Fat Louie in the movie, they call Fat Andy. When they show the boss scene, they do the introductions to all the wise guys. Mm-hmm. The actor playing Fat Andy was a retired New York City police officer. After the movie, about a dozen years or so, he was convicted of eight murders. He was working for the mob. <laughs> this whole thing, it almost sounds like, a, you know, it's got to be true because it, you know, they say it, it couldn't be fiction, you know, it, because yeah. it, it has to be true. Yeah. If it, Stranger than fiction. If this happened to you and not me, and you were telling me this story, I wouldn't believe it. I've never been arrested. I don't have a moving violation on my license. I'm a registered nurse. I would say this guy is nuts. FBI don't act like that. So I don't blame anybody if they don't believe it. But it's all true. I kept notes. Yeah, and and it was obvious you did from the way you wrote the book. There was so much, uh, you know, you, you you did it in so much detail, and you pretty much had it chronologically worked out, chronological order. And you just mentioned you're a registered nurse. Tell us, uh, tell us what you did, uh, your occupations from the time of uh, 1978 up until now. I think that's very interesting, also. <laughs> Well, the stupidest thing I ever did was stay at Lufthansa. This was 1978-79. I should have ran from the place. But the job market wasn't too good. And if you had an airline job, you were primo. It was, you know, I could have bought a brand-new car on my part-time salary because I could work as many hours as I wanted. If I wanted to work 50, 60 hours, I could have. So I stayed there all the way to the year 2000. Uh, the last 15 years were like office jobs. I uh, export senior agent. I used to work in operations. I used to balance the freighter, the 747. And I spent a lot of time on the ramp, loading the plane, unloading the plane. So in 2000, I left. Uh, the market was good to me. The bubble. Mm-hmm. And then I, uh, I went back into accounting because that was my major at Adelphi Accounting. I did that for a couple of years, and then I, after 9-11, I said, you know what, i got to do something important. So I was a volunteer fireman in a neighborhood, and uh, my, friend's, uh, my friend John, he was an Elmar fireman, his wife Carolyn was uh, going to LPN school, Licensed Practical Nurse School, and she said, Carrie, you would love it. So I figured, hey, what the hell, let me give it a try. So I went to Veeb, uh, it's a uh, Nassau County LPN school, and I, I had a great time. Then I got a job uh, at St. Mary's Hospital for Children, which uh, was really good. I mean, I saw a lot of things. You know, I, you know, it was a nursing home for kids. It was uh, 95 really sick kids with really different things. But it was my first nursing job, so I thought everybody did this. I mean, I, I had a kid with elephantitis. I mean, you know what that is? No. Elephantitis is... Like when half your face is totally deformed, and if like if it's your right side of the face, your face might go down to your right nipple. It, it's it's really really tough to look at. 
Okay, I think I I understand what you're saying now. Wow, uh, uh, gosh, that 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 takes a lot of dedication and a lot of heart to uh, uh, be able to take care of those kids. And uh, I think we all have a, a warm a warm spot in our heart for the kids. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and it's it's all paid for by Medicare, Medicaid, whatever, and. Uh, you know, if you live on Long Island and you got a kid that you just can't take care of, uh, there are places like St. Mary's Hospital for Children. You don't have to worry about the money. The, the government will take care of it. Okay. Uh, Carrie, are, uh, do you have anything else you'd like to talk about? Or uh, are you uh, good with maybe uh, seeing if there's anybody on the line that would like to ask any questions or comments? If somebody wants to ask a question, but I don't talk to FBI agents, U.S. attorneys, or their friends. I love New York City police. Don't get me wrong. Uh, I love law enforcement, but I don't. I don't deal with FBI, U.S. attorneys because they can't tell the truth. My best friend was a New York City cop, and he just died two months ago from 9/11. I don't think there's anybody from the FBI listening. If they are, they'd already be here. They would have been at, at my uh, door uh, a long time ago after listening to this radio show. So <laughs> I think we're safe there. Yeah, Christian um, is our producer. Actually, I have a question. Go ahead. Uh, were there any regulations at the airport or, or through the airlines or anything like that that were immediately implemented after that robbery? Uh well, I used to, like, transfer, like, a half a million dollars in jewelry by myself, you know, in a van. Just drive fast, don't stop for lights. Everything's green when you have a half a million in a van. But the Port Authority made it a rule soon after that, if you have more than $25,000 in the valuables, a police car's going with you. Okay. So that, that's the extent of the security. Well, there's nothing wrong with having a Port Authority policeman with you. Nobody's going to mess with you then. Board Authority, Board Authority, police in our, uh, they're they're like state troopers. They ain't going to play no games. <laughs> I get well, Carrie. I didn't get a chance to read the book, um, but listening to the story, uh, I I think I'm probably going to put this on my iPad and uh, check it out for sure. I've seen the movie too. Um, when I was in the military, we used to spend a lot of time we worked security and uh we used to everybody would bring in DVDs to watch and it, it was actually long ago that people had VHS that they'd bring in to watch. And we watched every gangster, mobster, wise guy movie there ever was twenty times. Because you're out there for fourteen hours a day, you got nothing else to do. And I and I've seen this movie quite a few times, so this is all very interesting. Oh, so I, I guess in my... times. Yeah, I'm sure you have. Have you ever seen a seven? You in the movie? Have you ever seen a seven forty seven freighter? I haven't. It's a seven forty seven. Just takes cargo. That's all it takes. It takes a hundred tons. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Cargo. Sometimes Doesn't the back uh, open up or something. Uh, ours the nose and the side opened up, but sometimes okay. the the army used to lease it. Uh, military, joint command, whatever. But the U.S. Army used to, sh we had like, you could get like uh, 29 main pallets on a plane. 
But the U.S. Army used to show up like once a month, and they used the whole plane. And everything was covered in black plastic. You couldn't see a thing. This is way before 9-11. I never saw a machine gun mm-hmm. airport. And it would be like 30 U.S. Army guys heavily armed with, you know, guns out, just walking around the plane <laughs> watching us. And we never knew what was going on the plane. Never knew. Interesting. No, it could have been nuclear bombs. But I didn't care. I mean, we knew what we were doing, and I'm sure they did too. But that was amazing. Well, having worked with, having worked around nukes, I can guarantee it wasn't nukes. So you were okay there. <laughs> um, but it just this whole story, this, uh, and I guess this is just kind of the curious side of me. I, I'm always very wary of government, and in, and especially the FBI and the CIA, because you know I've I've read stories about like the. Uh, uh, the, the big CIA drug deal that went down in LA, um, where they were they were funneling drugs in across the border from Mexico, and it was the CIA it was CIA doing it. Yeah. Um, and, and the FBI FBI isn't really any better in my opinion. But no, the, I don't at all. If, if but yeah, it, like I wonder if they were in on it. Like I I wonder if there was something going on there. But they, because why why didn't it's why were they so obtuse to help you, you know, in, in, during the investigation, and why were they treating you like that? It, it would seem like it almost seemed like they were they already knew who did it, and they didn't they want did you it. anywhere near it. They knew who did it. After the pictures were in the paper, uh, snitches called and said, uh, "That's Angelo Seppi. That's Tommy D. Simone." They know, and one of the Lufthansa, okay. one of the Lufthansa employees signed the back of a mugshot for the driver. And the driver was Tommy D. Simone. Maybe that's why he was killed within a month. Mm-hmm. But I don't trust the FBI at all, but the city police would have solved that robbery in a few months. The city police came over. They were the nicest guys in the world. My father's a city fireman. It was like having firemen in a house. They was, you know, just you know, tell us what's going on, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I, I put the names in the book, too. Uh, Detective Joe Connors at 113th and Sergeant McCormick. He was the artist division. Sergeant McCormick sits down in my kitchen for over two hours, wouldn't let me see what he was drawing. It was like a two foot by three. It was huge. And I can't draw a straight line without a ruler. And after two hours of him asking me questions, he turns it to my face. It was Angelo Seppi. I said, you just got to move the lip a little bit. March 5th, 1979, Newsweek magazine, and I'm quoting, Whalen did a composite sketch
Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Please hold and you will be able to listen to the show. told me about you and your book that got me so interested in this when he was down uh, uh, visiting down here in Florida on the, on the uh, Space Coast. So, Jerry, uh, so good of you to join us. Well, Jerry. I've been listening in on, uh, with, the, with all these reports. I just wanted to know how many more bodies are in Jamaica Bay. And uh, did Kevy ever try and sell the picture that the cop made of uh, of this guy? Uh, do you know Snake Road? That's uh, Brookville Boulevard. It goes, yeah. all, it goes all the way to Bay House. Uh, I bet you there's hundreds of bodies there. And I'm sure there is. <laughs> the federal government went in there and cleaned it all up, so the bodies have been moved to deeper water. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, there's, there's probably stuff out there we... We won't know about for a long time. I'm familiar with Jamaica Bay. I grew up in Howard Beach, so uh, you know, and I, you know, close to the airport. So you know, you, you know, a lot of the stuff that you talk about is, uh, it, it's unbelievable. But you know, but that's the way. That's the, the way it was. Yeah, that's the way it was back then. That's that's that's. I would go over to like a guy's house, you know, invite me for a party, and I go in the basement. And it'd be like boxes with uh, airway bill numbers. You know, that's the airline numbers. Yeah. You know, all over the place. Like, oh, my God, I'm not coming back to this house. Yeah. No, that was, a lot that of... was all stuff that was stolen from uh, the air, the airport that people had in their basements? Sure. Well, <laughs> it, if you worked in, in airlines, I'm talking the 80s, 90s, there was no, like, video recording or anything. There was, there was no record of what you were doing. Your trucker buddy shows up at door 10, and uh, 50 feet away, there's 200 pairs of Italian shoes, all skidded nice, nice and neat. You know, you take your forklift, one pickup, it's in his truck, he's gone. That's interesting. I work hey, uh, guys, uh, let let me uh, take a break and, uh, and tell everybody it's, um, it, we're at the end of the first hour, uh, that's... Um, 8 o'clock Eastern Time, 7 Central, and uh, 6 uh, Mountain Time. And it's uh, Thursday, the 17th uh, of uh, 2015. So you're listening to World Integrity News Network. And, Christian, if you have some uh, music or something you you can uh, play at the top of the hour, you have scheduled for us, you can do that now. And in the meantime, Reach out America uh, Radio. I hope all you guys... Stay over, and uh, and uh, I, and we'll have some more lively conversation at the uh, after, after the break. Okay. Reach out, America Radio, where news is never produced. It's presented with integrity. Join World Integrity News Network seven days a week from 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central to 11 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. Central on blogtalkradio.com forward slash W-I-N-N. Also on blogtalkradio.com forward slash W-I-N-N-I-N-C. We are here to help work toward a better tomorrow. Chuck O'Celli, the host of O'Celli Effect, and, his, and he's been known for many years as a blind GFK researcher specializing in intelligence agency involvement in multiple assassination, propaganda, and other global criminal operations in the 20th and 21st centuries. Chuck just keeps making Sterling point after Sterling point here, all right? The initial stages 
of surgically cross-sectioning the onion is where we are. The- it's something so far beyond the scope of what we've been told. And again, Chuck hit the nail right on the head. Those individuals who are completely immersed in surrogate reality, in just being concerned with staring down at their iPhones as opposed to looking at the world around them. The Ocelli Effect, the Ocelli Effect heard on the internet. A great show. Okay, we're good to go. Okay, um, do we have any other uh, callers that um, are on hold? Uh, just Brian. Uh, and that's it. Brian, uh, do you have any uh, questions or Unmuted. comments for Carrie? You might just be listening in. Are you may, yeah. uh, maybe he muted his uh, his microphone? I know I do that every now and then. I mute it and then I forget to turn it back on. Brian, are you with us? Okay, I guess okay. not. And uh, anybody else? Let's yeah, move on. Yep, that's it. Okay, uh, Jerry. Did last week uh, we uh, it was uh, the show was uh, September 10th, and we were talking about uh, 9/11, and uh, we wanted to get back and talk to talk about 9/11. We had uh, a lot of callers on last week, and uh, I was hoping some of them would uh, call back uh, to talk some more about 9/11 because I want to try and tie this together a little bit. Because in Kerry's book, he's talking about how the FBI, you know, lied. They misrepresented things. The uh, U.S. Attorney's Office and so forth. And yet, I'm still at the point with 9/11 that I don't know what to believe and what really happened there and how did this all happen. And I still can't I can't figure out what happened with this Building Seven. How it just kind of imploded upon itself when it was never hit by anything more than some debris, although I don't know that for sure because I wasn't there and I didn't see it. So, uh, uh, And Jerry actually saw this from the uh, the rooftops. I did. I was, on, uh, I was in Midtown in the 50s. I went up to the top floor. And we seen the plane hit. And then, you know, a little bit later, the other plane hit. And, you know, I couldn't believe it. And then when the... The buildings went down. I I walked right out of the building I was working in, and I said, "I'm going. I'm getting out of here." You you, you feel useless. I hadn't. I didn't have a weapon. I wish I had the M14. I would have been at least uh, in a position where I would have been somewhat, you know, calmer. But I was going. I was going crazy because they shut everything down. The whole building came come to a standstill until about one, two o'clock in the afternoon. And nobody was, you know, really knowing what's going on. And I'm saying, what's happening to my family at home? You know, did they, did they, did this, uh, after the first one, the first one you could say, well, right, that could have been an accident because that's happened, you know, at different times with helicopters in a city crashing. But uh, the second one coming around the bend and uh, making a turn and coming right into it, no, that's, uh, you know, then we knew they were, the, the Muslims were trying to, Knock everything off and uh, and and wipe us out, and uh, that's 
where I stand on that one, you know, and I eventually got home about maybe 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, still, you're still uh, worried, you know, you still don't know what's really going on. Carrie, where were you when it happened? I was uh, watching the stock market when I saw the tower go down on a CNBC. And like Jerry said, you know, the, the first one you think is an accident because a, a bomber, a U.S. Army plane flew into the Empire State Building. You know, it's an accident. But when two, no, you know, you know we're at war. Yeah, we didn't definitely. declare really declare war. We should have gone over there within within the first couple of weeks. Yeah, I'm not blaming President Bush for anything, but if I was the president, I would have had every nuclear submarine surface around the Statue of Liberty and then head out to sea. I believe somebody uh, that was on last week mentioned that he was working with nuclear nuclear uh, uh, bombs at the time, and uh, they yeah, that did... was me. That was a, who was this, Brian? Uh, that was Christian. Oh, Christian, yeah, I remember your, your story last week, and uh, it was interesting, you know. And uh, you know, we had we had the opportunity to do something, but I guess they they we, have we to were before they go dropping go. bombs, we have to know exactly who it was. Yeah, and and honestly, um, you know, having been in the military during during that whole period of time, you know, I was in from '99 to '06, so in uh, the Air Force. You know, we kind of pride ourselves on knowing what's going on a little bit more than maybe the other branches. But uh, we, you know, I, I, I was in Minot, North Dakota with the nuclear weapons and the B-52 bombers um, and the silos until May of 04. And then I went to the 820th Squadron, which was a place where the Air Force was starting to convert their security force guys into basically their version of Army Rangers so that they could compete with the other branches as having some kind of a, you know, a readiness value uh, to protect their air bases over there uh, by themselves. And um, at the 820th, we started learning a lot about what was going on over there and uh, how how the war was being fought and and all these things. And, and honestly, bombing them wouldn't have done any good. And you'd have had to turn the entire Middle East into a glass parking lot to make sure you got them all. Um, the the idea of using the special forces teams, using the intelligence from, you know, intelligence agencies was the way to do it. And honestly, we should have been out there with the Mossad and the Jordanians uh, working with those two groups because despite what anybody thinks, Israel and Jordan, they're our friends. They're good guys. And if we had been working with them using their intelligence with our our SEALs, our Marine Recon, our Perry Rescue, our Delta Force and Ranger guys, we could have taken care of this within a couple of years. Now it's so far out of hand, and, uh, you know, we're in trouble somewhat. And, and we, made a, we made a mistake by hmm. allying ourselves with, you know, with Pakistan and Afghanistan and uh, some of these other, we tried to go in and, 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 and especially Iraq, you know, Iraq didn't have anything to do with 9-11 there. All that other stuff was a separate thing. We, we shouldn't have even asked permission. Th- those countries are all chaotic, despot-laden, you know, 
horror houses, uh, horror houses anyway. You know, so why why would we want to deal with those guys? Why would we even want to? We should have just gone right in and gone for them. I guarantee uh, the Israeli and the Jordanian intelligence guys knew how to find those guys. We we could have found them. You know, we could have we could have wrapped that whole thing up early. But that's where you know my dad's kind of interested in finding out the whys of 9-11. I've been looking at this stuff for a long time because, you know, I was directly related to it. And I, when it first happened, you know, we were all just so mad that we wanted to get over there and start fighting anybody we could. You know, we were so angry that it happened. But then I have to look back and say, boy, I think our anger was really misplaced. You know, I think we were, we were just wanting to get after somebody for it. And I don't think we found out exactly who. I still don't think we know exactly who perpetrated the entire thing. Conspiracy theorists tell us that, you know, the U.S. government did it. But when you look at what happened after we went over there into Iraq, you know, all the all the contracting money, the oil, all that stuff. I was watching the debates last night, and I think it was Rand Paul said. Uh, the, the best thing we could have done to combat these guys as soon as this happened was say, we're not buying any more oil from the Middle East. We're going to become oil independent. Yeah. If that had happened, the Saudi Arabians absolutely would have just said, okay, well, we know right where, Obama, we know right where uh, 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 Osama bin Laden is. We'll tell you exactly where he is. Just keep buying our oil. That would have happened on the second day. And we can still have we that did. opportunity of doing that today. Just you know, close. It would more. be nice if we did. It would yeah. be nice if we did. I don't know why. I mean, it's money here that that's uh, putting everybody on the line. You know, with the oil companies, and it's the the military machine that's that wants to keep going in there. But we should just turn around and say, you know what? Screw screw everybody over there. We're tired of putting up with your nonsense. Either you, you you walk the line with us, or we're not having anything to do with you, and just stop all trade and everything else over there. I mean, it uh, it gets it gets out of it, it it's getting out of hand. Wait, hey, yeah. Jerry. Uh, okay. You know, in in my book, I wrote about that. Uh, we didn't have a Department of Energy until uh, I I think it was seventy. In the 70, 72 maybe, and that came under Nixon. And the idea of the Department of Energy was we were supposed to keep our uh, energy dependence, uh, in other words, how much oil we were purchasing, to uh, 30% or less. And what happened uh, then, we, we put billions of dollars and thousands of employees uh, to work in the Department of Energy to keep us from... Uh, uh, being uh, dependent on uh, Mid-Eastern or foreign OPEC oil. And what happened was we got up to where we were getting about 70 to 80% of our oil from OPEC from the uh, Mideast, and we're exporting all of our dollars, and we're getting in their oil. In the meantime, we've got oil that's sitting here in the United States. Uh, we have one of the richest deposits of uh, oil and coal and energy uh, in in the entire planet, and yet we're not using it. 
So what we need to do, and this is why I tried to uh, point I tried to get across in my book, is we need to get to the point that if we're going to export anything, we'll export oil or gas, and uh, we're not going to bring anything in, and uh, we're going to get the dollars coming back in here and keep the jobs in the United States. But the politicians apparently uh, don't don't want it that way, and I think that's because what uh, you guys were talking about before. All of the contracting work and and all that that was going on, uh, some somebody's getting rich off of this, and it's not the American people because our wages aren't going up; they're going down, but all of our prices are going up. Well, you're right, and that's uh, that's the, the energy uh, department is a do nothing uh, organization, I believe. That's what you what you said. They had thousands of people, and they the only purpose is to keep them working. Yeah. And just keep paying, and it all comes out of the taxpayer's fund, which is when it comes to your your thing with the 20% straight across the board. I believe one of the uh, the Republican uh, leaders last night mentioned that 20%. I, 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 can't, I can't remember who said it last night. I must have read your book, Bill. The only one that I know of that has a book is Ben Carson because I I personally uh, signed two of them for him and his uh, top uh, top uh, uh, campaign uh, guy. Yeah. But uh, some something that we touched on last week and and I mentioned it just briefly is and maybe Carrie or or Jerry can uh, uh, know something about this. What the the World Trade Center was seven buildings. There was the two twin towers, and then there was buildings three, four, five, six, and seven. Three, four, five, and six were still standing, but seven was hit by some debris. But it never was in the uh, in the path of the twin towers falling down. But yet it imploded like it was it was it was just blown up by charges. Uh, do you guys know anything about how that happened? You can see Building 7 go down on YouTube, and the building looks like it's a controlled implosion. Now, I'm not an engineer. I don't know anything about conspiracy theories, but I, I never saw a building go down like that. And I do yeah, remember some of the other buildings in the surrounding area, they had to, uh, you know, Shut them down, and I think one of them, I, I, I forget which one it was. Uh, they, had, they did have a name, but I, I, I can't remember. It was a New York name something. But uh, but they shut that down for about four years, and they had to redo everything and make sure that the structure was fine because it was close. I mean, it must have, you know, with the vibration on the, on the ground. I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of steel came crashing down. So, you know, and if, and if it was in, in the area... Of other buildings, it could have could have weakened the structure of some of the other ones, but the uh, the one at uh, number seven there, I, I'm not I'm not familiar with that, so I you know I don't know why why it went down and uh, yeah, for what reason. There were a lot of records stored in that building, weren't there? That that I don't know. I uh, maybe Kerry might have. Better understanding. No, I don't know. I mean, the, we... the prevailing theory is that there was supposed to be another couple of terrorists 
or, or another plane that hit Building 7. And just like, you know, the, the two Twin Towers, you know, they, they also collapsed into their footprints with controlled demolition. So the idea was that there was supposed to be another plane that hit Building 7, but for whatever reason, the guys that I guess were supposed to take over that plane didn't do it. Either they got maybe they got caught or maybe they decided, nah, we don't really want to go to go to heaven just yet or anything like that and they didn't go. But the demolition was still planned for that day. So they just blew up the building anyway. That's, yeah, but that's, that's the theory that I've I've heard. The, but but uh, the building was not ready to come down, wasn't that fairly new? Yeah, that was... Well, yeah, but that's the thing. That that was the thing. Like, it was supposed to be hit by a plane, and that plane never hit it. It was never taken over. So they were already set to control demolition that building to make it look like the plane caused it, just like the Twin Towers. And then they just blew up the building, you know, even though the plane didn't hit it. So that's well, a conspiracy theory that uh, this was an inside job. Yeah. I don't subscribe to how accurate it is, but I just anybody put a, can look at you know the way they blew up Vegas Hotel when they de, when they demolish them or they or you demolish any building yeah. and it looks the same. It's identically the same. They all look like controlled demolition. I just put a video on my uh, uh, Facebook page inside the Latanz Heist World Trade Center Seven's collapse explained. I haven't watched it, but if you want to look at that. Yeah, okay. I'm yeah, sure I'd, I'd like to watch that. Of, uh, yeah, uh, I've watched a morning. lot of videos from like the Canadian commissions uh, and European third-party commissions of just independent groups that are studying 9/11 to see what happened. Uh, as architects saying, you know, well, if this if this can happen to buildings, you know, how do we build buildings in the future in case this happens again? unanimously every single panel looks at the video footage, listens to the reports from the people who were there and you know, they're saying controlled demolition, it has to be. There's no other there's no other way that this this would happen. It is, it is strange. It does get it does get complicated when you start thinking things like that, you know? Because it's uh, it, uh, it, where does it end? It's a slippery slope. It's yep. a really slippery slope because if you believe one thing you're more likely to believe the next thing and the next thing, and then before you know it, you're wearing the foil hat on your head and screaming about, you know, aliens and all this other stuff. You know, you you, you got to kind of look at it objectively, and that's the thing. You know, they 9/11 happened, and really, it's, it's I guess for whoever planned it, it's fortuitous that they did it when they did it. But the internet hadn't been in full swing. Nobody had cameras on their phones. Uh, you know, it was all very it was, we were still back in, like, the end of the 90s kind of time. But if something like this were to happen today in 2015, it would have been filmed from every cell phone in, in a 20-mile radius. It, it, everybody would have seen it. Everybody would have heard it. And it would it would be all over YouTube. And you'd never be able to get away with it because you, you'd get enough videos of people saying, like, oh, no, no, look, there's billions, there's explosions going off in the basement. I was in the basement. I took my camera. I took a picture of it. There had been no way to get around it, but back then, the flip phone was still like the big thing on the block, you know, so 
We we ne- we don't know. We'll never know. Well, I know, I know. There's uh, a lot of a lot of money that was made to rebuild all these buildings down there. So uh, you know, it all comes back. That all comes back around in a circle. But you know, eventually, you know, somebody will give give it up if it's enough to you know if they can make enough money. Somebody will give it up. It's like everything else. It's like the the mob that uh, that's with uh, Kerry and his book. If uh, if need be, somebody can somebody will give up the top guy if he thinks he can get away with it and make money. Today, at the time, they were probably hiding under the table somewhere, wondering who's going to be next to get shot in the head. But in the long run, you know, whoever has oh, the yeah, money. And- Oh yeah, and I mean the the other theory, and you could argue that this has a little bit more merit than maybe some of the other uh, ideas out there. But you know, um, the Patriot Act first was introduced into Congress um, right after Timothy McVeigh blew up the Oklahoma City uh, building. Right? right? It had a different name. But yeah, that was one that, that very similar. Right, it was very similar plan, very similar scope, and what it could do. Uh, and this theory is that the government wanted the power it needs to kind of control the populace through this bill, through this act, right? But they needed to have a reason to enact it, so they sent Timothy McVeigh in to do this, or they framed him for it. Either one. Um, but the problem is we, we as Americans, you know, once Timothy McVeigh was caught, we were like, okay, well, the threat's gone. He was just crazy and we didn't go for it. So they needed a bigger threat that was sort of this all encompassing elusive thing, which is exactly what these jihadists are. You can't get them, you know, you can't ever really truly wipe them out because everywhere there's Muslims, you can have these guys and you don't know if they're good or bad. So, and that's the biggest religion in the world. Um, So then they create this threat with the Muslims to be this reason for why we need the Patriot Act. 9-11 happens. What happens right after 9-11? Patriot Act gets signed unanimously. I mean, it's it's in. And now we're being spied on, and now we're, you know, by our own government. And there's no question that that's going on. Um, And we've got all these privacy issues right now with the government. to me, that's a likely scenario. Um, of course, we'll never get them to admit it, so no, we never know for sure. And uh, Kerry, you're, you're still out there. Yeah. Why? Why would the FBI still be bothering you about writing, you know, on a book? You know, like they, they that's you what know, I was they, curious about too. It's been, it's been, a, you know, a few years. I know. You, you probably still have a lot of information that uh, you didn't put out there, but... Oh, absolutely. I'm taking some of this to my grave. Absolutely. I have oh. 13, 1,300 pages of FBI documents. They probably don't know what I have. Yeah. Uh, I, I, remember, I remember that you, you said you took pictures of these guys on a boardwalk on Long Beach. Yeah, they're on Facebook. Watching you, know, why? You know, I mean, and they did—they they did run to cover up their faces and stuff. So, 
So, you know, you, you got there's something out there, but, you know. No, no. They were both running, but they kept looking at me. Yeah. Plus, I only go and uh, with my sign where I know there's video cameras. I was yeah. right in front of the Allegra Hotel. That's right, on okay. all those security cameras. And, I, I, uh, Bill, I wrote a letter to uh, Loretta Lynch complaining about the FBI in 2013. She never answered me. Yeah, I remember you mentioned her in the, in the book, um, and, and your letter to her was, uh, tell us a little bit about the letter and what you were trying to accomplish. Well, uh, the FBI was stalking me for at least 10 days, and so once the FBI agent Manini called, I knew, I, and he admitted it, that he was over a few times, I wrote a letter to Loretta Lynch. She was the U.S. Attorney, Eastern District of New York, over at Cadman Plaza. And I said, hey, what is this guy doing? You know, she never answered she don't give a damn about a crime victim, an organized crime victim. He's on his own. Yeah. Never heard from her. So she gets promoted to Attorney General of the United States. Right. So the, then they're stalking me on the boardwalk. I took the pictures. I wrote a letter November of last year to Federal Judge Ross. She's the judge sitting on a Vinnie Asaro case. She never answered me. She don't give a damn about a crime victim. No. Did the companies ever uh, compensate any of the guys that got... Uh, we didn't get a slice of pizza. Not at all. Not so any, any acknowledgement from the company at all. We didn't, we, didn't, uh, we didn't get a free ticket. We didn't get an upgrade from a coach. To first, we didn't get a slice of pizza. Well, I have a letter. It's in the book. Oh. Uh, in April, after the robbery, Robert's in December. In April, you know, I was getting subpoenas and all, other people getting subpoenas. Uh, the company says uh, it's your civic duty to respond to these subpoenas. We'll only pay you for one subpoena day. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. So, hey, Carrie, um, K- there's some things I wanted. To, I, I was curious about when you talked about in the book. Apparently, this theft was going on at the airport all the time, uh, I mean, long before you started working there, and it's, it's still happening, uh, do the airlines, uh, how, do they, how do they cover for this? I mean, some, somebody, you know, uh, some guy like myself, if I'm shipping something someplace and it goes missing, what happens? Does the insurance pay for it? It seems like somebody would be investigating this because it sounds like there's a lot of money going down the rat hole. <laughs> uh, well, I forget what's going through Kennedy per year now, but let, let's say $100 billion worth of cargo. Maybe it's a lot more than that. If 1% disappears, who cares? It's an it's a expense of doing business. So that's a billion dollars. Yeah, who cares? Yeah, who cares? So, uh, And who pays for it? The insurance companies? Uh most people don't buy insurance. You, you basically, uh, you, you know, the airline will give you a couple bucks, and that's the end of it. It's, it's part of doing business. Now, if you're going to ship $100,000 worth of jewelry, uh, we're going to keep an eye on it all the time. We're going to put it in a valve room, and when the guy comes with a gun, we're going to give it to him. But otherwise, it'll be pretty safe. You're gonna, And you will insure it with your own insurance. But... Uh, now with the yeah, so, um, I guess the shippers have insurance, uh, you know. Uh, yeah, 
Yeah. Business insurance company. or something. It's a so, big so, incentive for the insurance companies because – People know that stuff disappears, but I don't know if it disappears like it used to, because now there's video cameras everywhere. When when they dro- when they stole the five million dollars and drove to Brooklyn, no video cameras picked them up. We had a couple. Uh, Flying Tigers had a couple. Seaboard probably had a couple. Nobody picked them up. But if these guys did it today and drove from Lufthansa Cargo to Brooklyn, a thousand cameras would have picked them up. A thousand. On the Belt Parkway, they would have been picked up a hundred times. And, they, and the cameras are on the Belt Parkway all the way down. Yeah. You know, they're, they're all over the place. Yeah. Hidden away. You, you could see them as you're driving and, and uh, set off to the side of the road on the road. Yeah, but, uh, absolutely. At Kennedy, at Kennedy Airport, they, they get the guys walk in, take something right off the dock and walk out right out. And uh, yeah. it was it was a... Like you said, the means of doing business, and uh, and it was acceptable. Yeah. You know? I mean, not not to the extreme where you take everything, but you know, if they took the if they took the one percent, right. Then that's I'm... all. That's all they they were. I guess they would have been happy. But that that went that went on uh, in the docks also, and in, in New York City and Brooklyn, and uh, as far back as oh, sure. from from the beginning of time. Absolutely. Someone was sitting there, somebody would want some of it, and they found a way of getting it. Yeah. I, I worked there 23 years. I, did, I didn't deliver cargo for 23 years, but never once was I checked when I gave out cargo. Nobody ever came up to me, let me see the paperwork, let me see what's on the truck. Never. Not once. No, uh, no it wasn't. Uh, I know. I, 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 uh, I went over there back in the 70s, early 70s, and... Uh, they, the, the guy that I was picking up the stuff for got phone calls and they wanted to know who I was. He says, I, I don't know. I, the guy came in. He, he uh, said he's just going to go over there, pick up one or two things. And that was it. It was something that, you know, his his guy couldn't pick it up. So he asked me to go do it. Yeah. And next thing you know, he's getting phone calls. Who was the guy that was at the loading dock? Mm. You know, there are people watching, even though there's no cameras, and you better have the right face. Yeah. Jerry, let me uh, let me take a break right here. Uh, it's uh, half past the second hour. Uh, we're list- uh, Everybody that's listening is listening to Reach Out America on the uh, World Integrity News Network, and uh, this is um, a show that you can call in every Thursday evening at... Uh, 516-453-9128. And, Christian, I just said every Thursday evening, but we're being moved to Wednesday evening starting uh, the 23rd or next Wednesday, aren't we? That's right. So we'll be on, on the Wednesday night at uh, 7 Eastern, 6 Central, instead of Thursdays. Uh, there's been uh, – the network is doing some realignment and so forth. I guess that happens with every uh, – radio and TV uh, outlet, network, uh, station, whatever, that uh, things change. And we don't have anything to do about it because uh, uh, Jerry and Carrie, we're just volunteers. We just, we're just doing this. We don't get paid for it. Uh, we're, we're <laughs> in a sense, almost, uh, you know, kind of out here, you know, trying to uh, make, this a, make this a great show. And that's why we're having the interesting guests like yourselves on here. And uh, 
Normally we have uh, more callers call in, but I guess tonight maybe was a bad night or maybe we just didn't promote well enough. And one of the things, Carrie, I know you asked me about uh, the link, and that's something that uh, we've been talking about. We're having a hard time getting that, but uh, I put a link on there for the show from two weeks ago. Uh, I didn't put the one for last week because it was uh, we got knocked off the air and the Internet was down, uh, the uh, network connection was down. But we will get this, uh, somehow we will get this on the air, uh, on there, we'll we'll send out links to uh, Carrie, to you, and to Jerry both, and uh, you'll be able to uh, listen to this, and you can just go on, and you can listen to the entire show, and you'll be able to hear everything that happened and so forth, and it'll it'll stay on, uh, uh, it'll it'll stay live. I I'm not sure exactly how long they stay live, but uh, it'll be on for several months. But anyway. Uh, we really appreciate you guys being on, and um, I, I, I guess this has just blows my mind to uh, think of the uh, amount of theft that goes on. And I'm sure, I'm sure this happens at other airports. Carrie, have you ever heard about, you know, like at LaGuardia or uh, God, God happen, uh, help every, me, Newark? Every airport in the free world. I don't know about Russia, but but I'm not talking about now. I haven't been working there in 15 years. Like I said, with the security cameras and all, I don't think uh, kids are doing that anymore. It's, it's probably kind of, probably the theft is down to like uh, a tenth of 1%. They just, they just probably found a different way of going about doing it. I mean, years ago, it was right out, right out in the front. If somebody did walk over and take something, you know, it would be to your best interest not to not to see it. Oh yeah. Not to say anything, you know, because once you once you put you, know, you point the finger at somebody, you know somebody's going to come after you. Oh so sure. They, today they they do it, you know, probably behind closed doors. Sometimes maybe with the paperwork before the truck even gets there, it's already been emptied, and and it's the paperwork that's that might be uh, misleading. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, it's not the physical carrying stuff around like they did years ago. It, this could be the whole truck. And yeah. uh, next thing you know, it just winds up missing one out of uh, a thousand trucks that's supposed to be pulling in. And the next thing you know, the truck is not there. So where did it go? What happened to all the stuff, you know? And then they find it on a, on the side of the street somewhere, and they figure, you know, whatever the reason, you know. But there must be... I'm sure there's, there's there's somebody come up with different ideas on doing this. Yeah, but I'm sure it's down a lot. Uh, when I used to drive to the airport, you'd see burnt-out trucks all over the place. The guys yeah. would hijack the truck, take the cargo, and set the truck on fire. Now you don't see that anymore. Yeah, all right. Yeah, that's 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 possible. Remember the Bell Parkway in the 70s, 80s? It burnt-out cars all over the place. Yeah, you know, and it's not, not uh, nothing like it is today with uh, with the overpass and going into the JFK overpass, and you know that used to be. I mean, I used to walk from Howard Beach over to the International Building as a kid. I put that in my book, and we used to play there when yeah. we were like ten years old, and nobody ever bothered us. I mean, it was very few roads going in going in there, and, right? But coming like today, I mean, every time you turn around, you got everything going in there. Yeah, 
and I get lost. So I have a question about the. Um, I have a question about the the German guy that uh, he opened the vault. Uh, is that Klaus? Rudy, Rudy, saved my Rudy. life. If Rudy wasn't on, so, I probably would have been killed. So it, that's the thing, though. Who else could open the vault besides Rudy? Just Rudy. Just Rudy. So if Rudy hadn't opened up the vault, do you we think they would have killed all you guys? They would have been pissed off. They would have been pissed off. Rudy is the only one who has the keys. He's not allowed to give them to anybody else. Even if they gave me the keys, I wouldn't know what to do. I, I know where, you know, panic buttons were. I didn't know where they all were. I knew if two doors were open at the same time, that automatically triggered alarm. I came out of the vault a few times, and it, there's the Port Authority cop there with a shotgun. He, know, he knows it's an accident because it's the middle of the day and there's a lot of people around. But we, we made a mistake in there. I guess I I'm really surprised that, that they didn't kill all you guys anyway. Well, my opinion is they got the order. The two guys who beat me up behind the building were responsible for about 30 murders. And I walked away with six stitches. The, that, the reason is because the boss told everybody, just come back with the money. I don't want to read anything about you killing anybody. He didn't say keep your mask on. He should have. But Tommy Simone was whacked less than a month later for taking the mask. Well, one of the reasons was taking the mask off. Yeah, you would think they would have just said, okay, get the money, keep the mask on. When they get on the Belt Parkway, heading back to Brooklyn, they could, they could take it off. There was no, there wasn't any cameras like they were today. And it's an open open road. Nobody would even bother you. Right. Right. What, what did they have on, Carrie? Was it like ski mask or something like that? I never saw it. Because put, what they did is they put a hood over your your uh, head, right? So you you not, couldn't see no, anything. No, 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 no. I still got my lucky hat. It's a, it's a navy hat. Uh, you know, like a, a navy hat, and uh, they pulled it down on my chin. And uh, when they told me to take it off, I didn't take it off because I assumed nobody had any mask on. I thought I was the only one with a hat or cover on my face. I still have that hat. I never saw yeah, that a lucky hat. That's my lucky hat. That was loaded with blood, probably D Simone's DNA. Now they could have, they could have got their DNA. But yeah. that's a lucky hat. I still have it. And they guess they didn't, uh, they didn't take the hat as evidence. No, there's no reason to take it. Oh, they, 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 you know what they did? That, that blood, the black officer who showed up, that very professional guy, he should have been in charge of the investigation. It would have been solved in a couple of weeks. Uh, the, the mobsters, when I was in the cafeteria, took my wallet out, and they go, uh, uh, Kerry Whalen, down the stream. Huh? We, we'll know where to go if we have any problems with you. Yeah. And he pulls the $5 bill out of the wallet. I couldn't see it because I, I, my nose is to the floor. And he says... Five bucks, shit, you're worse than me. I had to leave you ten. Well, the police took my money. That's a shit, right? Yeah. The, the, the black officer was a real nice guy. He gave me a receipt for it. I still have the receipt, the serial number. I even wrote Judge uh, 
Ross, I said, I want my $5 bill back. Yeah. People might think I'm crazy, but hey, that FBI stole my money. I want it back. I mean, if I stole a $5 bill from an FBI agent, I think I'd be in jail. Well, something like yeah. that, you would think they would, they, they would but, uh, you know, yourself, years ago, they they would just write it down, and uh, that, that got lost in the evidence uh, bag. Yeah. yeah. And the thing that was, Carrie, that $5 bill was $5 you borrowed from one of the guys so you'd have something to uh, eat and drink that when you stayed right. overtime. Right. I, I only had change in my pocket, and, I, and Kevin was going home at midnight. I saw Kevin. I said, Kevin, can you loan me five? And that was Kevin's five dollar bill. <laughs> and the FBI stole it. And I'm sure Kevin wanted his five back. I gave it to him. I gave him five. Yeah. No. And then the, and the FBI. I would. Yeah. I would still write it up. But uh, you know, it's a it's a shame that no, nobody was listening to you when all this shit was going on, and you had and you had the names and places, and uh, you know. I guess you're going to go for part two one of these days, right? Yeah, well, just this week I got a chapter with this guy coming around the house. All right, well, that's good. Let me get a, you know, a few more. and. Uh, yeah, the- next month if there's a trial, I don't know if I'll testify. I mean, I'm sure the U.S. attorney doesn't want me anywhere near there. But if- no, well, I, unless you had something uh, very important to say. But maybe that maybe they don't want you to say anything. Oh, they don't want me to tell the truth. You kidding? No. They don't want me to. Number one, the FBI agents who worked on the case in seventy eight, seventy nine weren't the most honest people in the world. So, whoever the FBI FBI agents are now, what documents do they have on their desk? What did the creeps that I dealt with leave them? The same yeah. I've requested. I have an FBI document that says uh, evidence was destroyed in 1989. Lufthansa evidence was destroyed in 1989. They might have destroyed everything important. Oh, that's like the the, the papers uh, and everything else and all the tapes, even uh, from the White House. All of a sudden, everything is missing, and it's better to say it's missing and nobody knows what happened, uh, the fire, wipeout, whatever. Yeah, well, the statute, come out with the, truth. the statute of limitations, I think, for armed robbery back then was like seven years, maybe five years. So, like in 1989, whatever they destroyed the evidence, they figured, even if he was an honest guy destroying it, we can't use it. I mean, we, we can't hold on to this stuff forever unless they send it to the Smithsonian. So, right. I yeah, would think they would, they, they, would, they would keep something like that considering it was the, one, of the, one of the highest priced uh, robberies. Yeah. Well, who knows? We'll never know. Yeah. On the Freedom Information Act, uh, they have no responsive records of me. Oh, they don't even have you in a, in a record book? Well, that's what they wrote me. They said no responsive records. And I never testified before a grand jury. Never. Yeah. Largest armed robbery in American history. Largest armed robbery in American history, and an eyewitness never spoke to the grand jury. And they arrested a guy on my say-so, they say. Well... Did they throw the guy in jail? Yeah, Angelo Seppi was arrested uh, February 17th, 1979. Uh, and they dropped the charges like 35 days later, like March uh, 25th. They dropped the charges, but they held him in prison prison for about a year for uh, parole violations, nickel and dime stuff. And he, yeah. got, 
He got whacked in 1984. Wow. Well, uh, so he was safer in jail. Carrie, uh, do you suspect that the FBI agents like Sweeney, uh, were they being paid by the wise guys? Or I, was there a payoff or anything like that? I, I have no proof of that. I I have no proof of that. I, I have proof that they lied to federal judges. But of a, a payoff, I have no proof of that. I wouldn't be surprised. Nothing would surprise me. But I have no proof of that. After reading your book, nothing is going to surprise me either because, you know, we put faith in uh, in the United States of America and in the, in the Justice uh, Department, justice system that the FBI, they're supposed to be the good guys, you know, the untouchables. But apparently yeah. they're not like that everywhere. The, the, the FBI around here in the Eastern District of New York are above the law. You would think if I wrote a complaint to the U.S. attorney and a federal judge, they at least write a letter. We're, we're in receipt of your letter and we'll investigate this matter. I know in Nassau County, if I wrote a letter to the police commission and said, I saw, well, I could say uh, the two policemen who showed up uh, Tuesday in my home, one of them spit in the street. The police commissioner would write me a letter back uh, we're investigating this, blah, 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 you know, yeah, a BS story, but at least they'd write a letter. I'm talking about being stalked by FBI agents. No one cares. And you had and you had it on tape. <laughs> you know? Yeah. That's it. You, you, know, you know what the story was. They, and they know, and they, everything goes under, under the table. Yeah, well, but, hopefully the defense attorney calls me to the stand. Because on the oath, you know, they ask the right questions. I'm not going to lie. You know, things I don't want to talk about, they ask the right questions. I'm going to answer it correctly. Well, I'm really, uh, really surprised the company didn't uh, do anything for anybody. Nah. Any, uh, like, uh, I guess, like, today they would get a you know, group of people come in, doctors and uh you have these uh, issues with uh, PTSD and, uh, you know, flashbacks on, uh, uh, you know, getting thrown in the trunk of the car, getting pistol whipped. I mean, uh, my, this my, is something I, that you're never going to forget. And I, I, I spoke to Mike, one of the hostages, after the book came out, and yeah. uh, we, we, was, he was talk, we were talking like that. And then we said, you know what? If, if it happened like that again, we'd all get lawyers and sue them. Yeah. But then they, they, you know, they push that under the side too, or keep it going for a hundred nah, years. Nah. If, we, if we all sue the airline and the port authority and everything else, uh, somebody would settle. Well, unless they, unless you sign the paper when you got employed by them, that uh, they can do whatever they want to you. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't, you can't do anything to them. Yeah, maybe. But I'm lucky to be alive. I mean, other people, you know, 23 years years old are at work, and they get run over by a forklift and die. I just got six stitches. Yeah. Got harassed by a lot of people, but uh, I'm uh, 60 years old. I'm alive, and I'm healthy, so. And I wrote my book. That was uh, on my thing to-do list before I die. After I'm gone, it'll be there. 
Well, man, it's a, it's a good story. I, I know there's other stories out there about the heist. I think that Jimmy, wasn't Jimmy Hill wrote a book, too, with somebody else? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of books out there. I, the only uh, book I would recommend is Wise Guy by Peligi. That doesn't cover much of the heist, but that, that seems to be a legit book. And uh, Henry Hill's kids wrote a book, Greg and Gina Hill. Yeah. Uh, I think that it's On the Run, uh, Mafia Childhood. That's a very good book. Yeah. I, I got it from the Elmont Library. It's in some libraries. On the Run uh, by Greg and Gina Hill. It's a lot about, you know, where where they lived. Rigo Park, Valley Stream, Rockville Center, all of that stuff. And they told it like it was. Yeah, it, well, that sounds, that sounds interesting. If they... Yeah, it's a good read. Yeah. Well, Carrie, your book, and and I want to mention it again, is Inside the Lufthansa Heist, The FBI Lied, and it's by Carrie Whalen. And Carrie was the guy that was there. He was a victim. He was a guy who got pistol whipped and uh, was uh, held uh, held hostage in his way or held uh, under uh, gunpoint for a while. But, Carrie, I'm looking at Amazon.com, which your book is on, and people can get it on Amazon.com. There's some other books listed here. One of them is called The Mystery of the Lufthansa Airlines Heist by Robert uh, Saberna. Are you familiar with that one? I didn't read it. Uh, I, I found out with most of these books, they're, they're, just, they're just going on Google and reading all the articles and not telling you anything new. So this guy wasn't involved in the, he he wasn't the victim. He wasn't involved in the investigation. No, he's an he author. Just, uh, he, he's a, he's a, a mob author. Okay. Then there's uh, I mentioned earlier the book by Henry Hill, the uh, Lufthansa heist behind the six million dollar uh, cash haul, and he wasn't involved. Uh, he's just uh, you mentioned him what just kind of a petty uh, thief, petty gangster, uh, small time and, guy. I, 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 I think he just knew, uh, he might have known Lou Werner was in trouble. Lou was making like, I don't know, then $15,000 a year, and he was in the hole for like $20,000 with his bookie. So I think Henry just like hooked up uh, Lou Werner to Krugman, a big-time bookie. I think that's about as far as much as Henry knew. After that, whatever he knew came from the Daily News. Okay. <laughs> then there's another book called The $10 Million Getaway, The Inside Story of the Lufthansa Heist by Doug Feiden, F-E-I-D-N, Doug Feiden. Yeah. Doug Feiden. I read the free sample, you know, like the first chapter. I wouldn't recommend it. Wait, yeah, it, wait it only you... got three stars. Yours got five stars. Yeah, well, because I'm telling the truth. You get five stars for telling the truth. <laughs> well, we'll give, you, we'll give you an extra one. You did. You did give me an extra one. Yeah. All right. Good. And, Bill, your book is very good, too. I wanted, One of the best lines I ever read was in your book. And, what, US, and what was that? The U.S. should get out of the United Nations, and the United Nations should get out of the USA. Great line. Uh, I've been uh, saying that forever. Yeah, um, yeah, I love that. Um, as I listen to the uh, 
the debates now, and I listen to all these uh, candidates uh, uh, that are running on on both sides. And, uh, and let, let me let me uh, just say this on, on the on the one side, the Democrat side, I can't see anyone who's over there that I would trust this country to for another four years. On the other side, the Republican side. It seems like they're all a bunch of good guys or good people, and every one of them's probably got a good idea or two, but there's none of them that are really going to solve the problems. There's no leadership whatsoever on either side that's going to get in and say, okay, we're going to make America uh, the way it should be you know, again, and we're going to unite America. That None of that's happening. I don't see that at all. But anyway, they say, well, what, what's your Mideast strategy, and what's this, and what's that? You know, what would you do about ISIS? What would you do about Iran? And I'm thinking, my God, doesn't anybody have any leadership? Doesn't anybody understand what this is all about? I was a Marine officer, and they taught us, uh, you know, strategy and tactics. We have to have a, a global or a worldwide strategy of which the Mideast would be a part of that. And we have to figure out how do we want to really be, uh, how do we want to run our country and how do we want to be uh, involved in the world. And uh, President Thomas Jefferson said something to the effect of, um, um, you know, uh, good relations with all countries but foreign entanglements with none. And I believe that's right. We shouldn't be involved in all these foreign entanglements with everything that's going on. And we've got to stop this foreign aid because the foreign aid just goes to the dictators and the despots who are, you know, uh, funneling the money into their Swiss bank accounts or the Cayman Islands or whatever. It, it's, it hasn't solved poverty at all. It hasn't really helped the people at all. It, when You know, we see the pictures of people. They're still living the same way they have. What I want to see us do is, is train young people to go over to these countries and have them train their young people. And, and I'm not trying to uh, be age discriminating because there's a lot of us, uh, a lot of people are in their 30s, the 50s, 60s that could certainly be involved in this too. And I'm just thinking about the ones that have the energy and, you know, and, and need to train to go over and show people and help people build power plants and roads and schools and hospitals and so forth so that they have something, that they have electricity. You know, a lot of these countries, they don't have anything, that they can have an Internet. Uh, you know, they can, uh, they can have a way of uh, building something on their own. So what do we do? We take billions of dollars and we just throw it at them and say, okay, here's your bribe, be nice to us, you know, and the, and the leaders say, okay, we'll buy a few bags of rice and give it to the people, and then we'll put uh, millions and millions into our bank accounts uh, in Switzerland. And that's bullshit. Why are we involved in this, in all this crap? Uh, Jefferson was right. <laughs> we, we should give foreign aid to Israel, Jordan. And most importantly, we should be giving money and military equipment to the Kurds. There you go. Well, yeah, those those guys are guys who like us, and and they can get the job done. Yeah, uh, they they have women fighting. They fight just like the men. Yeah, anybody if you can hold a and weapon, children. you can shoot somebody. And well, don't forget, don't forget Thomas Jefferson when he was uh, president. He was getting annoyed before he became president. Uh, our government was paying the Muslim nations overseas 
not to hijack our ships. And that's when they turned around and he says, you know, this is bullshit when you become president. And then he sent the Marines over there to Tripoli. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, he goes. Enough is enough now, and this is what this is what we need right now. I think we got to, you know, put our foot down and say, you know, we're tired of this bullshit. And uh, you know, I think all the all the Republican candidates should all sit in one room, all of them together, and say, look, one of us has got to be a leader. I mean, uh, you can't, you know, Trump. You know, Trump has a uh, an attitude, and a lot of people don't like it. But he is—he has—he has, he has a, uh, a voice, though. And uh, they gotta—they gotta sit together and say, okay, who's gonna be the one that's gonna be on top of you? And uh, we give everybody come up with an idea, and and twist the ideas around and get and get an agenda going. Yeah, if if the Donald was elected, I tell you, he would turn Washington upside down. And, but you know, I mean, people people didn't like him when he was in. Uh, parts of the city either, you know, doing, uh, you know, all his wheeling and dealing, and, uh, I mean, you know, being, uh, being like a wise ass or whatever, but at least he can get, at least he, he does get the job done. Bill? He does pat, he, he, he's uh, noted for patting himself on the back. Yeah. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. Building a skyscraper in Manhattan is like the, one of the hardest things to do in this country. With all the legal red tape and all the government agencies, hmm. and he probably has a dozen projects going. Yeah. So he, he gets things done. I call him the Con Ed guy. Talks just like Con Ed. And maybe that's what we need. Yeah, maybe. Okay, guys, uh, I'm going uh, to close this uh, with a little uh, self-promotion by saying if we do get any of these guys together and we do get them in there, and my book has got all the solutions in there. All they have to do is use that and say, hey, we'll just do what's ever in the 2020 book, and uh, that, and we'll fix the whole darn thing. Anyway, I wanted to be able to get a little plug in for my book, uh, 2020, A Clear Vision for America, and uh, you can find it on Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. What I'd really like for you to do is go to my website, which is www.2020americabook.com. And uh, actually, all you have to do is just type in 2020americabook.com, and that will come up. And we're right at the uh, just a few seconds away from 9 o'clock Eastern, 8 Central. So uh, we're going to have to uh, call the program to a close. Uh, this is uh, WINN, World Integrity News Network. And, uh, Christian, uh, I guess this is it. Play the final song. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. <gasps> No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.